is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. Deborah Jordan Cobble was the central figure in Bud Hopkins' important 1987 book, Intruders, The Incredible Visitations at Copley Woods. She later wrote her own book, Abducted, The Story of Intruders Continues, and this was published in 1995. Sadly, that book has been out of print for years, and Deb has just published a revised and updated version titled Extraordinary Contact, Life Beyond Intruders. This is a remarkable book that goes far, far beyond the headlines and clickbait in this new era of UFO reporting. This book is a deeply personal journey, and it plays out as remarkably hopeful. Whitley recently did an excellent interview with Deb on this same book, and the full-length version is available for non-members. I will link it in the show notes. Let me say this. This is essential listening. You can certainly listen to this episode, my episode, without having heard Whitley's first. We do reference a few points from his interview in our talk, but you can easily listen to them out of order. But you should definitely listen to both. I purposely tried to ask Deb questions she normally would not get asked. I know just what it means to publish a book and then get asked to speak on dozens of podcasts. As a guest, I love getting asked things that are out beyond the boundaries of the normal set of questions, and I tried to do that here for Deb. I am also linking a video in the show notes where Deb cleanly tells the story of her harrowing 1983 contact experience. It was created by Adnan Adamovic for his excellent YouTube series, UFO Hub. I read Bud's book, Intruders, in 1993, and a few years later I read Deb's book, and I talk about this during the episode, and how this same story can play out with such a different set of emotions given their differing points of view. Many listeners might know of my 1993 experience of waking to see five gray beings outside my bedroom window. This happened in the winter, in a small house in rural Maine. I had the book Intruders, written by Bud Hopkins, about Deb, setting on the nightstand just inches from my bed when this happened. I had been reading that book just before falling asleep. At the time, I used this as a way to dismiss my memory, thinking that the book and all of its frightening imagery had somehow influenced my subconscious state, and I dismissed it all as a dream. I denied that memory for years. Deb's new book, along with two of Bud's very important books, Missing Time from 1981 and Intruders from 1987, have been out of print for years. All three have been republished by my friend Robbie Graham and his publishing imprint, August Night Books. Robbie and I spoke while he was in the midst of working with Deb on her new book, and I told him I knew her and I had read her book when it came out in the mid-90s. I was interested, and I asked how the editing was going, and his reply was exactly what I had expected. He said she was wonderful to work with, and the process was a breeze. This is a long interview, nearly an hour and a half. Our audio conversation was recorded on Friday, July 23rd, 
2021. Please enjoy. Deb, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means so much to me. Oh, you're welcome, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. Um, I read your book in its initial printing shortly after reading Bud's book, and I must have read Bud's book in around 1992. Actually, the winter of 1993. Winter of 1992-93, I read it. Mm -hmm. And then I read your book right when it came out. So I read those two books back-to-back. Um, and well, not back to back, but essentially, you know, I read Bud's first, I read yours afterwards when it came out and I, um, was struck because it's the same story, but they are completely different books. When I picked up your book, I was a little hesitant, like, well, I already know this story. And I actually, I would, I don't want to hurt Bud's feelings or anything, but I, I, I enjoyed your book more. I found it was a much more intimate look at, at your own personal story. So Thank you for that. And can I ask, like, what's new in the in the new book? What's changed and what's what's different about this newer book? Well, the newer book, obviously, the the old book is kind of wrapped into it because that's part of my life. Um, And it's it's a big part of my life and, and the weird stuff. And I felt like I had to include it because the new stuff wouldn't make as much sense without the old stuff. So um, in the first book, in Abducted, it was my sister and I, and we had alternating chapters. And the reason that happened was because um, I had already finished Abducted completely on my own. And then my sister and my mom approached me and they were like, Kathy would like for you to put some of her stuff in your book. And I'm like, "Uh, Kathy can write her own book because I already (laughs) finished this. But they guilted me into letting her get in, uh, letting her be in my book because I had literally thrown her under the bus when I wrote Bud that first letter. So, you know, I felt guilty. So I took her stuff and I had to tear it all apart and figure out a way to, to mesh two completely different people's stories into one book, which that's how I ended up with the alternating chapters. And it worked, you know, it, it worked. It worked. But then you know, life happened and things were still happening to me after that book came out. And I had gone and done a couple, a few speaking engagements at conferences and uh, places like that. And I was meeting a lot of people and they were always, they were asking me a lot of questions. And um, like I said, my, my uh, contact or my experiences started to shift and I started to change again. And so I decided, you know, I don't know, a few, several years ago that I was going to make a revised edition of that book. Well, in the meantime, my sister, she gets, uh, she's, she gets very ill and she has many strokes, multiple strokes. And to the point where she's in a nursing home and can't take care of herself anymore. Oh, I'm so sorry. She doesn't know uh, who we are or anything like that anymore. So when I went to, and on top of that, the old files where I had stored all of the original book went through the tornado uh, and went through several moves. And when we went to put it on the new computer, the old works for Windows formatting did not follow through in windows word yep 
And so I got like 28 pages of symbols that I didn't even know that keyboards made and then maybe three sentences that made sense. So it literally took me years to unravel all of that mess and find the book again, practically had to rewrite it. Well, and my sister being in the condition that she was in, she couldn't contribute anymore. She didn't even know who I am most of the time. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to take this book back to the way it was originally written, which was just me because she can't, even if she's had new experiences, she couldn't tell anybody about it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't figure out a way to work around it. So I just took it all out. So if anybody wants to read about my sister's experiences, they can go back and get the book abducted and her, her parts will be in there. But I wanted this to be more about, not just my own experiences, but also my transformation and the changes that have happened to me throughout this whole thing, because I wanted people to read it and feel like they didn't have to be afraid to speak up and talk about their weird stuff. I wanted people to feel comfortable being able to do that. I wanted people to know that, you know, they're not alone in the world and you can have scary traumatic experiences and you can still come through them a better and stronger person and you can get rid of some of that fear i mean you know there's light at the end of the tunnel i just wanted people to feel hopeful and uh you know i felt the best way for me to do that was just focus on my transformation and the experiences that i had since i wrote abducted and also you know the different aspects of the paranormal that I kind of got more involved in and just all of that stuff that that's all in the in the new book okay okay you said something just right just just now you said hopeful you want this to be hopeful yeah I like I want to so that I've written a few books and that like I didn't go into those books knowing the outcome knowing what I would be writing but in retrospect, those are hopeful books. I feel, I hope they are hopeful books. And so why why did you want it to be a hopeful book? Because many people's experiences are traumatic and dark and, and brutal. Oh, I know mine was. I mean, in the beginning, you know, mine wasn't as bad as some people's. But mine was, I was terrified. I was terrified. I feel like I was injured, you know, by the, the white light and injured my eyes. And, you know, it was scary and terrifying in some some parts of my uh, experience early on, my experiences seemed much more physical than uh, as I got older. And, um, you know, I, I overcame that fear. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know if it's just the way I dealt with it because like uh, one of the things that I do when I'm afraid of something or I, and I usually find that most of my fear is because I don't understand it or don't know about it is I try to learn everything I can about it. So I joined MUFON and I became a field investigator and I started to investigate other people's cases. And I started to find a lot, look at all the evidence out there and listen to all the people and there were thousands of people having these experiences and uh, reporting them, you know, and I got a lot of knowledge from that. I met a lot of people like, uh, I met like Whitley and uh, Linda Howe and Richard Dolan and, um, 
back early on, I got lucky enough to meet um, Dave Jacobs and uh, a couple times and um, uh, John Mack and of course Bud and um, just I worked with a bunch of really good investigators and researchers and I learned a lot. And for me, knowledge is power. And it, with the more knowledge that I had, the less fear I had. And um, then when I flipped into the paranormal realm, you know, with the what they call ghost hunters, and I I like to do the EVPs and would get some. Mm -hmm. I noticed a lot of the younger people that would be in the investigations would get freaked out and scared and run off, and I'd sit there in the dark by myself, and I wasn't afraid at all. I just took it all in and was learning from it, you know. And so um, I don't know. I, I I understand the fear and I understand the anger, especially early on, you know, when you first realize that this is happening to you. But uh, I'm living proof that you can overcome that. And not only can you overcome that, you can use it to make yourself a better, stronger person and help other people to be the same. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And that's in your book. That's in your book. And that's something that I've had to do. You know, it was less fear. And, and it was more just for me, I'm talking about for me. Yeah. Like my, I didn't have fear necessarily from the events. I certainly had this like oppressive confusion in, in the level of denial I was dealing with. It was really tough for me. Now, at that time when I was first starting to look into this, I sent letters out to folks. I sent letters to Leo Sprinkle and um, I actually called Leo Sprinkle and talked to him on the phone. I was living in Idaho at the time and I met him. Um, I'm going to tell a funny little story here. So I went into Leo's office. This was at that point when I was just like swallowed up in this level of confusion and doubt and denial. And I told Leo all these stories. I sat in his office and did a, we did a formal session. He's a, he's a, he's a psychologist and a therapist. And we did a formal session and he, I told him like, oh, I had missing time and I saw this close up UFO. And then I like this one time I saw these aliens in my backyard. There were five aliens right in the backyard. I looked out the window and I and uh, and I told him all these things, these these uh, a lot of synchronicities. And then at the end of my, you know, kind of babbling, I said, you know, and I don't think I'm a I don't think I'm an abductee. And he slapped his thigh and he just let out this belly laugh. He just roared with laughter and in a way, that was the best possible thing for me. Does, does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. I, for, for him, for his character, it was just a wonderful, helpful moment for me. You know? It, yeah. It was the wake-up call I needed. Yeah. He probably knew that. <laughs> he was. I, I met him a few times. He was a really nice guy. Yeah. He's still around. He's, he must be close to, I think he's in his early 90s right now. Wow, time. <laughs> so it was it was also in that time when I was sending those letters out. I sent a letter to Bud, and um, he got back to me. Actually, his his work partner uh, Oliver got back to me, and I went to New York and met with Bud, and that was at a very unsettled, confusing time in my life. And he was a he was a really remarkable presence. I didn't not that first time I didn't do a hypnosis session with him. And that would have been in 2007 when I met him. And so I, I worked with him on and off over the phone and in person between 2007 and 2008 and did one hypnosis session with him. And, um, and I found him really a compassionate, sensitive, caring person. And as you've mentioned, he was a, 
um, you know, he was, he's not a therapist, but he had a very calming presence to be around him. And I found him remarkably warm. Oh yeah. I mean, he was so compassionate. He, he cared so much about the people that he tried to help, you know, I mean, and I, I met him early on in the beginning of his, uh, career in, uh, abductions and and ufos which i think he was like an unintended path that he ended up finding himself on i remember his wife uh, at the time april always saying i married an artist hopkins you know <laughs> she would she'd get mad if he was uh spending too much time with this but how could he help it it was he was driven to i always used to say to him i bet you were abducted and he'd say no i was not nope absolutely not i uh, he had a sighting on the Cape years back in the car with some friends and it just piqued his interest and it kind of took off from there. But um, I felt so blessed to find him. And I've I tell the story many times, like on the bus on my way to New York for the first time, I had this massive panic attack. And I thought to myself at the time, what in the hell is wrong with you? You are on a bus on your way to New York City, big city from Indiana, you know, that in and of itself was intimidating to me. And um, you're going to see a guy who wrote a book about aliens and UFOs and abductions. And this guy, you don't know anything about him. You, he could be an ex murderer, you know, you, you're, you're, you're crazy. You're a mother. What are you doing? And I had this massive panic attack and I almost asked the bus driver just to pull over and let me off. I didn't care where we were. And go home. Uh, but I didn't. And thank God I didn't. Um, I remember when I got off the bus in New York City and there he stood. I recognized him from the picture on his book. And there he stood with a bag of muffins and a cup of coffee and uh, immediately took me to Dr. Clamar's office, the psychologist that he had got and was working with. And she was very calming and helpful to me. And um, he was always all he ever wanted to do was help me that's how desperate i he knew i had to be desperate to do what i did to come there yeah and he did everything in his power over the next few years to help me the first thing he did uh before i even met him was he hooked me up with a buddy he would introduce uh people who had had these experiences to each other and everybody would have a buddy and then you could call them anytime, day or night and share with them, you know, and my buddy, God bless her heart. Uh, I remember I called her one time at like midnight because I thought I saw something outside and I was freaking out and she was so sweet. She had been in it. She'd been more aware longer than I had been and was a little older than me. So, uh, you know, he did things like that and he had meetings, regular meetings at his apartment, his uh, studio in New York City, which obviously I couldn't go to uh, very often. I think I went to two in my whole life. I wish I'd lived there so I could go more often. But And uh, he reached out to professionals because he was an artist. He wasn't a psychiatrist, a psychologist, or uh, even a therapist. He was uh, he wasn't a doctor or, or anything like that. He He was an artist, but he wanted to help people. So he reached out to professionals. Like I, like I said, he took me to see Dr. Lamar as soon as I got to New York. He uh, took me to the hospital there in New York and had somebody either donated 
the time or the money to pay for it because I had no money. And uh, to have, I had a CAT scan of my brain. I had an EEG where they put the wires on your head. I had a verbal and written psychological testing done at the hospital, uh, all to rule out obvious things like brain tumors or, or uh, anything like that. And uh, he arranged for a voice stress test at one point. Oh, wow. With a police officer. From somewhere, I don't know. He's the one that made the arrangements for this guy. The guy came to uh, Indy, and I took a voice stress test, which I passed. The guy seemed, Bud said he was a little, it bothered him a little bit. <laughs> but he said, you know, oh, at the end of the day, it all it tells me is that I she believes what she's saying, but that doesn't mean it's real. <laughs> but, this, I mean, that's what the guy said. Yeah, so. yeah. So Bud really put so much effort into helping me. And I did well, thanks to him. He, I feel like he saved my life. And honestly, had I not met him, my life would be absolutely unrecognizable right now. I might not even be here. I wouldn't have met my late husband, which meant I wouldn't have lived where I'm now. I wouldn't have met my husband. My kids wouldn't have met their spouses. I mean, not, none of my life, I wouldn't have my grandkids. I mean, there's nothing about my life that would even be remotely recognizable had I not met him. I, I understand. And, I understand. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and he's, um, you know, as the years pass, I was doing well and I was beginning to form my own ideas and thoughts and theories about what I was experiencing. And occasionally I don't think he was all that crazy about some of the things I was learning on my own or feeling from within me, but he like a good father figure, you know, I mean, he, he, encouraged me to be the best me I could be, whatever that took. And uh, like when I wrote Abducted and he wrote that beautiful forward for it, you know, I, I'm sure there were some things in that book that he wasn't exactly thrilled about, but he, you know, it, it was my journey and he allowed me to do that. Sometimes I think that he felt more strongly about the whole purpose behind the abductions, especially with the, the hybrid thing, uh, more strongly than I did about some things, you know, Yeah. like I, yeah. I always said, I, I got pregnant by my ex-husband and I, I will, I always say that because I have to live here and I have to live with it. Cause I'm not sure all I, I can report what I think I remember, you know, but it still is uncomfortable and hard for me to do even to this day. And, uh, you know, Oh, I understand. Oh, I understand. Yeah. Hey, Hey, we need to take our very first break. It'll be a short break. For free listeners, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and I'm talking with Deb Jordan Cobble, and we are talking about her new book. And I'm jumping back a little bit to the book she worked on with Bud. That was Bud's research, and later she did her own book. I read those two books, and then I read her updated book, so I've read in essence, all three of the books we're talking about here. Before I start, when I met Bud, I was very troubled. A lot of synchronicities were happening in my life. And I asked him, like, you know, when you do the research, do you, like, include stuff about synchronicities and stuff and, and these outlying things and these weird things? Because that's what was troubling me, is all these little odd things that seem so improbable that were clouding my life. 
And he said, he made this gesture, like he made like a, like a, like splashing water. He made like a splashing water gesture with his hands where his hands went ploof and went far apart. And he said, you know, when you research this stuff, the threads go everywhere. And he said, it's my job writing these books. And then he made like a thing, like he was smushing clay together in a little block, like hand gesture, like smushing this thing, like in a, right in his, right in front of him. And he said, it's my job to compress this stuff and, and just work on the core story. Yeah. Exactly. And in the years since then, I realized what I'm doing and more in my research and my writing and such is I'm much more interested in those little dots that have splashed out to the outside. Mm-hmm. And when you said, you know, like, oh, there's a couple things in the book like that might have upset Bud. Like, I, I feel like I worked with Bud and I'm certain there was some things in my books that would make him crazy. But yeah, he was like, well, f- some things he wanted left out of the book because he wanted to use what was in there and what wasn't in there for control purposes in going forward with other people in new cases. He didn't want people to be reading a bunch of stuff, details that might help him later on, you know, with other people that new people that come forward. And he said to me on more than one occasion, it is he was trying to keep it as simple and straightforward as he could, just like you said, with all the little threads, because he didn't want people to be more confused than they were already going to be, which I fully appreciated trying to write the book that I wrote, try not to confuse myself (laughs) with so much stuff all at once and hoped that I didn't confuse the reader. So I got that. I understood that more when I wrote my own book. (laughs) <laughs> there was a there was a point in Bud's book Intruders and I think it was your story where it was a very eerie story where these I think you were young you were younger and these kids what seemed to be young teenage kids kind of came walking down the road and asked you about what music you like and what bands do you like do you remember the story you know it's funny I was just talking to my girlfriend today that we've been BFFs for 50 years and it was her family that I went down there to Kentucky with and she just started reading my book and she said I wish I could tell people how different you are from the girl I met when you were in seventh grade and then how much you changed almost overnight after the June 3083 incident she goes I wish I could tell people that and I said well girl I'm gonna have to you'll have to write something and I'll put it on my website and I might have to start taking you with me yeah when I go speak but uh because we've known each other since I was in seventh grade and we're in our 60s now so that's a long time we've been through everything together but it was with her family that night we I had gone down, I had always, I had been going down to Rough River State Park in Kentucky with her family, like every 4th of July for I don't know how long. And it was one time when we were down there for that. And uh, her and I, it was the CB radios were all the rage. This was in the 70s, I think. Smokey and the Bandit. Oh, yeah. Breaker Breaker 1-9, you know. And so her dad had an old pickup truck with a CB radio in it and her parents went into the, the cabin and went to bed and her brothers were out there with us for a while. And then they went into the cabin and then me and her were out there in the truck and we were talking on the CB and we happened to pick up some guy, some boy was talking to us on the radio on the CB and he sounded cute and young, you know, and for teenage girls, that's what we do. <laughs> and um, she got kind of bored with it. Uh, because he just seemed to be talking to me all the time and never asking her any questions because he knew there were two of us here. So she went in, in the cabin. And I said, well, I'll be in there in a little while. And uh, 
they started, he started asking me where we were and I didn't know how to tell him where we were. And I wasn't about to because her dad would have killed me if these boys would have rolled up in there. Well, I, I was about ready to call it quits for the night. And he's out of this voice comes out of the radio from the blue and says, I see you. And I thought, what? And I looked up and I looked back behind the truck and here comes this set of headlights gliding up over the ridge. And I thought to myself, oh my God, Terry's dad is going to kill me. I just thought her father, oh, I was dead. I was <laughs> dead meat, man. And they rolled up in, behind us and three boys got out of the car. Two boys were tall and slender and they had dark hair and dark eyes. It was dark out, but I could still see them. There was light from the cabin and the fire and everything. And um, the other boy that got out, I think he was the one driving. He was shorter and he had long, long blondish wavy hair and a cute face. I thought, oh, he's so cute. I mean, I was a teenage girl. That's that's all we think about, I think. But um, he started talking to me. And uh, I, at some point, either Terry came out or I took him in because, uh, you know, it's been like, 50 years ago, but oh yeah, yeah. somehow we managed to, we managed to get into the, ha into the trailer, took them in the trailer. The, it was a, just a big double wide or trailer, you know, but we called it the cabin and there was her dad and her mom and her brothers just all sitting there and they were all kind of like, just like zoned out. And, uh, I think it was her dad who spoke up first and said, uh, can I get you something to drink? And the blonde, the, the blonde boy was the only one that ever spoke. And he said, well, we'll take whatever you have the most of. And he said, what do you have the most of? And Ed said, beer. And he said, okay, we'll take that. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and this was a dry county, but we always, they always managed to have beer there. And so uh, he gave them beers and we started talking. And all of the questions that he asked were like, he, he, he want to know, well, what kind of music did we, we, I, we asked him, uh, what they did, you know, and they said they were in a band and, and we said, well, what kind of music do you play? And he said, well, what kind of music do you like? And we told him and he said, well, that's what they played. And, um, you know, just all kinds of questions about us all. It, it seemed like he kept asking the questions about us and these two, the two boys with him, they look like twins and they never spoke, but they stayed by him all the time. And at one point when we were out around the fire and we were talking, they got ready to leave. They were explaining to Terry where they were because we want to know where, where's your campsite at? Because uh, back then there's, you know, like Terry's parents cabin, we called it, was pretty isolated there. We didn't even, we called the road. It was on no name road because it didn't have a name. <laughs> so but they described where they were over this ridge or that ridge or whatever. And Terry's like, okay, I think I know exactly where they are. Cause she used to run around down there all the time every year. Uh, she'd been going down there all her life and she had other family down there. So, uh, and they had gave me a, I think they gave me a card with a name on it or something. I believe but anyway, then they left. And it was funny because Terry's brothers and mom and everybody thought that the boy that did all the talking, the blonde, looked exactly like me, only male. He was like the male version of me. And and Terry's mom thought he acted like he kind of had a little crush on me or something. Wow. And I clearly 
was mesmerized by him. I thought he was so cute. I couldn't stand it. And there it's funny because they said he looked like me, but, um, that, so they left. And then I think wasn't that night was the next day. I think we got up and Terry's like, let's go find him, you know, cause they were cute. And, uh, so we drove all over the place looking for this campsite that they said they were at. And there was no campsite. There was nothing where they said they were, there was nothing. And there wasn't even any sign of having anyone having been there. And, uh, the card that he gave me, I'm, I'm can't remember when, but it just disappeared. It disappeared and we never found it again, but it, that was the weirdest thing because all of her family remembered the incident. They even remembered more of it than I did and uh, had more to say about it. Now, both her parents are, and two of her three brothers have passed away now. So it's just her and one other brother. But, you know, they vividly remember it. Even to this day, Terry remembers it. She says like it was yesterday. We talked about it not too awfully long ago because they just couldn't get over how odd these boys were, how these two never spoke. And this one, all the conversations seemed to be turned around. Yeah. And this is the problem with this research is that you get this odd stuff that just sits just outside the boundaries of what we would call normal. Mm -hmm. If that was a normal set of kids in a band or young or teenagers in a band from whatever the mm -hmm. early 70s, it would be entirely different. The story you would tell. Yeah. So this is the this is the challenge. So. You do this thing when you tell these stories. You leave this open-ended stuff My. where, like, I, I know what I'm thinking. You know, I'm thinking this is some sort of screen memory. And you tell the story. You're the witness. You tell the story very plainly, very clearly, all your emotions. And then me as a listener, and you do this a bunch of times in the book, I'm, I'm like, thinking, like, oh, she has to know. You're, you're immersed in this subject enough to know that these seem like screen memories or some sort of mind control was put on the family so they could walk right into the house even if, if they were genuinely odd or if they were i mean were these so is your sense that these were a screen memory or would there been sort of like some sort of hybridized alien human that was able to fool you see i don't know i i honestly do not know i don't know if it was a it could, could have been a screen memory but it it seemed like not at the time, uh, it, you know, it could have been, uh, completely not anything like I remember it or like, you know, the thing is what, uh, you know, Terry and her whole family were there and they also saw them. I mean, I would almost, if, if uh, these stories in my book that I talk about and this one like this, if it were only just me, I would ha I really would seriously doubt, you know, my recollection. Oh Yeah. Yeah, totally. But when you're talking like with this one, it wasn't just me. It was two, six other people. Yeah. And me. And we all remembered the same thing. So, so I don't know. I mean, it, I've heard of screen memories before. I've heard a lot of people talk about them over the years, obviously, and being and being, you know, a researcher myself at some point and also working with Bud. But I don't know. I, I do not know. Yeah, you do it a few times in the book. Yeah, and I, I understand just what you're doing. You're relaying your memories, and you, you struggle with them, and you say how weird it is, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I do. I tell, I, I tell people what I remember, 
And uh, thank God, most all the time, it usually involves other people, like I said, or otherwise, I'd seriously wonder if I was losing my mind. But I, I just tell people what I remember. And uh, I mean, I could, I, I may have a theory or my own personal opinion, but as far as facts goes, I have, I, I don't know for sure. I can't prove anything other than what I remember and what I know. And so that's what I've always tried to do the whole, my whole life of, you know, talking about what goes on with me is just tell you what I remember, tell you what the other witnesses tell me. And, uh, the rest is, you're just going to have to figure it out. Just like I'm trying to still figure it out. <laughs> hey, let me say that I'm going to say this. Um, Whitley praised your book and your writing very highly in, in, the interview he did with you. And I agree, the book is wonderfully written, has a nice tone to it. And what I can say, having met you in person and having listened to you on some interviews and and read your books over the years, like when you read that book, it is your voice. Yeah. Like it is your voice I'm hearing in my head when I read that book. So it reads, I mean, like it reads like it came from you. Sometimes I've read other people where they kind of try to up their writing a little bit so it sounds a little more formal. Liz, you didn't do that at all. You said I no. I hear your voice in that book every <laughs> single word. Well, I'm 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 not a writer. Like I I didn't go to school. I don't have any uh I mean I have a high school diploma and a beauty school certificate, which I'm proud of, but I'm not a writer and I didn't go to college. I don't have a lot of big fancy words. I wasn't raised using a lot of big fancy words and I'm trying to communicate with people in the only way that I know how. So I write like I talk. And I mean, you, you, you succeeded in communicating. So yeah, good. And I and I appreciate that. I it really means a lot to me because I'm telling you, writing this thing, writing the other one, same way, I, I never know when to be done. I always doubt myself. I always question whether I made any sense or if I used the right word. I mean, it, it's really a struggle for me to let it finally go and do what it it it's supposed to do because I never feel like I'm good enough. <laughs> you know, like I did a good enough job. <laughs> I think every writer struggles with that. Yeah. It's a rare person that doesn't. And I, and I bet you the person who doesn't struggle with that, I bet you his books are boring. <laughs> so here, Hey, we're gonna have to take our second and final break for free listeners. You will hear a few commercials for paying members. We will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and I am talking with Deb Jordan Cobble, and we are talking about her new book, and in that book, you talk a lot about dreams, and I want to address a few of those, because this is something that I think gets ignored in, in let's say, the nuts and bolts research, and this is a part of the overall experience that fascinates me, is the dreams that emerge. You told a dream about a hummingbird. I would love to have you share that with the audience. That's one of my, I call them my teaching dreams. Uh, yes, uh, I, and I would agree with you. After having spoken to literally hundreds of people, maybe thousands over the last 38 years about this, this is a part of contact. This is a part of the experience, but it just takes years to bloom. And, and uh, you know, even the people that are feeling fearful and, and angry right now, they're going to get here. They're going to get here because this is, to me, this is my opinion, the natural progression of this uh, whole reason behind this contact. Uh, I have two sets of dreams. I have the regular dreams everyone else has where I maybe might wake up and think, I oh, I had a dream last night and 
a half an hour later and half a cup of coffee later. I can't even remember. I had a dream. And then there's this other kind that I don't have nearly as often. And I, they're my lucid or vivid ones. And when I wake up, I remember them. And the more awake I am, the more of them that I remember. And I write it down and it stays with me. And I this hummingbird dream, that was my, this is what I called a teaching dream. Uh, and the difference between these vivid dreams and the regular dreams is these are 3D, 360 degrees. I'm in them. Everything's in color. Uh, I have my full set of sensory you know sight smell touch taste everything functions and in this dream I was in a lawn chair in my mom's backyard watching my kids play and there was a wiffle ball bat if you know those little plastic wiffle ball bats laying sure. on the ground next oh, yeah. to me. and something was buzzing around my head and I thought it was a bee and I didn't want to get stung so I was swatting at it with this wiffle ball bat and I hit it and when it landed on the ground, I realized it wasn't a bee at all. It was a hummingbird. And I was devastated. I sobbed and I was heartbroken, you know. And I picked this little thing up and this dream, this dream like lasted an entire year. <laughs> For real. And I, wherever I was, time time was different because it, this dream like went on because I nursed this hummingbird back to health and thank God it didn't die. And it came back to life. It came back to health. And, and, and it's like after about a year or so, you know, it, I set it off and let it be free. And then I hear this voice say, did you understand this dream? Did you understand this lesson or this dream? And I said, yes, I do. Don't lash out at something without knowing what you're lashing out at. And, you know, don't don't lash out in anger or force at something that you don't understand or, or you don't fully recognize. And they, they're like, very good. You know, I mean, it was literally a teaching dream that it taught me, you know, not to do that. And it stayed with me all these years. This is that's symbolic. I mean, that was that dream is very clear. That dream is very easy to understand. Okay. And and you talked about another dream where you were climbing up a hill in a storm and the rain and, and it was frightening. Yeah, I, that was a that was a dream that I've had. It, it's a series of three dreams that come over three nights. They always come in the same order. I've had them multiple times throughout my life and they're always the same. The first part of the dream is I am, you know, I'm here, I guess, on Earth. Uh, it's. The sky is a weird, dark color, wind blowing, rain blowing, stinging your face. I see like flashes of light in the sky and I see red streaks and blue streaks and um, it's just horrible. And I'm literally, I'm hiding in the brush along the edge of this open field and there's a hill in front of me that I know I have to get to this hill. And then like the, the first part of the dream is pretty quick and I wake up. And then the second night I have the dream where I have that, where I'm at the brush and I'm seeing the hill and I'm trying to get to it and I'm digging my fingers in the mud and I'm literally holding onto the ground as I try to crawl uh, across this field and this wind is blowing and the rain is battering me and I can't see and it's just horrible. And uh, then I wake up and then this, the last part of the dream I am at the foot of this hill and I finally reach the hill. And when I look up at the top of the hill, there's a guy standing on it. And the guy 
is completely unaffected by everything going on around me in this in this world that I'm in. And of course, I'm covered in mud and soaking wet and cold and scared and all this chaos going around me. And here's this dude standing here, like all clean and white and all got, you know, he's illuminated where I could see him. His hair is like not blowing around in the wind. He's not wet. It's like he's almost, I don't know, not quite all there or something because what I'm dealing with, he's not even affected by. And he reaches down to me and he says, come on, let's go. It's time to go home. And he takes my hand and I wake up. I don't know what that means. I don't know why I have had that dream. I don't know if that's just my my mind's way of when it gets overstressed that I do have that dream or if it's something that I did in another life because I believe I believe in reincarnation. I believe we've done things before or if it's something that's going to happen. I don't know what it is. All I know is that I've had this these series of reoccurring dreams for as long as I can remember. Haven't had it for a while. But you you found the site. Yeah, I think I did. I've I've always had that in the back of my mind every time I see a hill. It makes me think of that. Well, this is weird because um, I found myself down at Cahokia. Uh, you know where the Cahokia Mounds are? I've been to some of the mounds in the Midwest, in Ohio, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, this is in, um, I believe it's in Illinois, in Collinsville, Illinois, mm-hmm. or near there is the Cahokia Indian Mound. Uh, Forrest Crawford took me there. Uh, I've been there several times, and uh, I first I thought it was that place, uh, but now... Uh, you know, I thought, how am I going to get down to Illinois, the Cahokia Mounds, uh, before, uh, if something happens? Well, then they built a new park here in town, uh, on the outskirts of town, which so happens, interestingly enough, to be the same park where I was trying to film the orange lights in the sky the night the Kokomo boom happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a big hill and a, a row of scruff trees there. And I feel like, you know, I could be wrong, but, it, and it's a park where you has a walking path. And I was walking around the path one day and I looked up and I happened to look at the hill and I must've just hit the angle just right because I stood there and looked at the hill and I'm like, Oh my God, that's the hill in my dream. And, and there was a ditch associated with this or like a, of a, a culvert. Yeah. Yeah. There's a ditch right along the edge, uh, between, so there's like a little scruff of little trees and stuff, and it's there's like a ditch, and then past that is like an apartment complex. But then there's this scruff of trees, and there's this ditch, and then there's open field, and then there's this hill. And I don't know, like I said, I don't know why, but I must have been standing in just the right place when I happened to turn around and look at that uh, hill, and by God, I thought that was the place where I need to go whenever stuff hit the fan. So, uh, so I don't have to go all the way to Illinois, <laughs> go across, but I thought it was interesting that the same place where I think I saw the hill in my dream is the same place that I had the sighting of the orange balls of light and that over on that side of town, that's the night of the Kokomo boom, which was kind of a big deal here. Yeah. Yeah. So here, I'm going to ask one more story. This is not a dream, but it feels very dreamlike in the telling you gave of it in the book. And it was a truck that that fell into the lake, that story. Oh, my gosh. 
Well, I was no, that was not a dream. I know, but it but it has a dreamlike quality to it when you tell it, yeah. I know it really does. It's just weird, and it's totally weird. Um, I was pregnant at the time, and my husband had gone to the bowling alley with his dad, so I was there home alone, and it was cold out winter, and I'd gone to bed, but I felt restless, and I was in a, a second floor apartment, and my apartment. The back patio overlooked a, a, like a, a retention pond kind of lake thing that they dug out when they built up the interstate. And there was across the pond was another um, across this lake was another apartment complex. So but anyway, I, I couldn't sleep. And obviously it was cold out. The doors were closed. And, you know, I was back in my bedroom was at the front of the apartment and the lake was behind the apartment. Well, I kept thinking I heard somebody. I kept thinking I heard somebody calling for help. And I got up and I, I remember getting up, looking out the window and didn't see anything, went back to bed, couldn't shake it. I kept feeling like something was wrong and somebody needed help. Somebody was calling. I kept thinking I could hear them. So I put my house coat on and I went downstairs and went outside and walked around the building to the lake. And I could see where somebody had driven a, like a little truck between the buildings, because there were several buildings all around the edge of this lake. And like between one of them, you could see where somebody had driven a truck into the lake. And the lake was like the truck was like kind of halfway in the ice mm -hmm. and the back end sticking out. And I thought, oh, hell, what is that? You know, and uh, I started to turn around and walk back into the apartment. I thought I heard somebody call for help again. And I turned around and I looked and I just turned around at the right time and just happened to see a head pop up from the, right above the ice. And uh, he held for help again. And I heard him and I hollered at him, hold on, I'm going to get help. And then I started yelling and screaming and it was late at night and nobody, I know people heard me, but nobody Everybody ignored it. And I saw, I thought I saw somebody look through their patio door and then close their curtains. And I'm like, hold on, I'm going to get help. So I went and I called 911. And I said, I think some guy drove his truck in the ice and he's tried to walk across the pond and he's fallen through the ice way out in the middle. There's no way I could get to him. They all came, the fire trucks and everybody came. And, and then I started, I came back downstairs and I walked around the pond all the way around to the other side where the other apartment were. They were that, about that time they were pulling this guy up onto the bank. And I had my nightgown on and I was big and pregnant and flowing my, you know, I probably looked like an angel with my big fluffy gown on. And uh, I walked up to where they were pulling the guy up out of the water. And uh, I asked the police officer or fireman or whoever, one of the rescue people, I said, is he going to be all right? And he said, yeah, I think so. Are you the one that called? And I said, yes. And he, hey, buddy, look up here at this here lady. She's your guardian angel. And he just kind of looked up and I think he was so cold. He couldn't even speak, you know? Yeah. I, I went ahead and went ahead and went on home. I, they asked me a couple questions and I went home. I didn't really talk to anybody. And uh, I later found out that apparently, A, the guy was drunk and B, he'd stolen that truck. <laughs> And for some reason thought he could drive across the ice in it. But, you know, I mean, better to be in jail than be dead. Yeah, yeah. So so here's my question. Could you have heard him call when you were still in the apartment? No. 
No, that's the thing. There is no way. My husband was like, are you kidding me? There is no way I should have been able to hear that guy. I could barely hear him when I actually saw him. You know, I just barely heard him. And that made me turn around and I saw the little head pop up in the eyes. Keep us pretty good clip, far distance away. I'm crappy at distance, honestly. I, I can't tell you exactly how far away he was, but he was pretty, it was pretty far away. There's no way I could walk across yeah, there. Yeah. You know, he was actually closer to the other side than he was to me. But no, there, I, I, there just doesn't make any sense how I would have heard him because, the, like I said, the patio doors and all our doors were closed. Yep, the yep. glass was closed because it was cold out. It was winter. And the patio and the back of the apartment is what faced the lake. I was in the front of the apartment in our bedroom. Yeah. And it's a big brick building. So made no sense. So there's a woman, her name is Elizabeth Anglin, and she wrote a book about her own experiences. And I've talked to her many times. She tells a very similar story. When she was a girl growing up, she was at home. It was raining outside. And she heard a voice basically like groaning for help. And she's like, Dad, do you hear that voice? And it's like, no, no, I don't hear anything. And she's like, Dad, do you hear the voice? And he doesn't hear anything. So she walks out in the rain. And she walks and she walks and she turns a corner and she's like in a rural area and she, there's a car that I think is like pinned to a tree and the man in the car is pinned in the, in the seat and he's losing consciousness. And it sounds like a terrible accident. And she holds his hand and she's holding his hand. She's holding his hand. And she, she basically, I think if I'm remembering this correctly, she like is wants to be there as he dies. And then her father shows up. He followed her and he said, you stay here, I'm going to call the ambulance. And he ran back to the house, and the man ended up living. So she's had UFO contact. She was one of the very first people who worked with Dr. John Mack. And um, so this is a very strange thing, like to have two such similar stories coming from people who have had direct UFO contact. These details leave me astonished. And I'll go back to the word we talked about earlier. They leave me hopeful that there's something behind this mystery that's that seems benevolent given these kind of stories. Yeah. I, and even, you know, now looking back on the parts that were scariest for me and painful and, you know, like the pain in my eyes and everything, I don't feel that what happened to me was intentional. It may have been an accident, you know, or side effect of something that was unintentional, but I don't think it was done to hurt me. And I feel like honestly, I feel like I'm just speaking about myself and my own experiences and my own feelings, but I feel like that uh, the early contact that I had, physical contact, helped to make me more able to do things like hear that guy say, help. Uh, I, I have weird sensations i feel people's energy sometimes and i don't even mean to do it i'm not trying i can't control it but like if i'm walking down the aisle at walmart and somebody with really bad energy or something uh, walks by me i feel it and i just literally shudder and i get goosebumps and i don't even i can't control it i i, I get that i get that yeah and on the flip side i feel uh good things too and um and good things happen, you know, like finding that man. Yeah. You know, I saved his life. I don't, I didn't talk about it very much. Uh, it, as it turned out, 
later on in the, the, I think the following year, or maybe even later on in that year, I was uh, messing around in my kitchen and I heard somebody holler for help again. And I looked out and a little boy had been trying to ride his bicycle out onto the ice and he had fallen through the ice, bicycle and all. And there were kids on the bank screaming and I ran downstairs and about the time, time I got down there, the kid's mom she had she was had called the the fire tr- department and her and I got a garden hose and we were able to get him almost all the way out before they even got there to mm-hmm. rescue him but I heard him calling for help and so my apartment complex this is cute they gave me a little certificate and the, and on it it said angel of the lake <laughs> because this is the second time I saw and was able to get help somebody get out of there. <laughs> oh, okay, again, the same question. Would you, did you actually hear the, the boy yelling for help or the boys yelling for help? I thought I did. Again, I was in the kitchen this time, so I was in the middle of the apartment, wow. not, not far back. But it was cold out and the doors were closed and stuff, so I don't know why I heard him, but I did. Yeah, this stuff, this psychic stuff, this this premonition stuff, this kind of spiritual stuff um i flipped out my i flipped out my uh ex-husband we were driving down the country road at night and you know i'm always kind of leery because i've lived in the country before and i'm very i'm very protective of critters and i don't i mean i'll get out of my car and stand and stop traffic so ducks can cross and things like that i've done that before and um we were driving down the country road one night on the way home and I looked over at him and I said, you better slow down because something's going to run in front of the car. And he goes, yeah, whatever. And I'm like, no, I'm not kidding. Slow down. And just about the time I said that a deer jumped out of the brush right in front of our car and he slammed on the brakes. We did not hit the deer. And he looked over at me and he said, how did you know that that deer was going to come out here? And I said, I don't know. I just did. I something just tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Be careful." There's an experiencer. Her name is uh, Kim Carlsberg, and she has addressed these kinds of things. And she said her assumption or, or her speculation, and she says it quite forcefully, is that because of the telepathic communication on board the craft, she says once you're open, you are open to everything. I I agree with that. I feel that I feel that way as well. I feel like either. A, there was something different about me before I was born, you know, with my wiring or B, in the course of facilitating this telepathic communication, they opened up something or something triggered in my mind to grow. I feel like I have some new circuitry and I don't think I'm unique. I think anybody can have this, but it has to have the right stimulation in order to grow and and connect, you know. But I agree with that. That's my theory. I, I'm not a doctor or a scientist. I can't prove anything. But oh, I get you. I get you. Yeah, that's that. But yeah, so there's all kinds of which came first, the chicken or the egg is like, it's impossible to answer. But I, I understand exactly what you're saying. In your book near the end, you speculate about something. And let me just say, I said this earlier, you're very plain spoken. You are not from Sedona, if, if you know what <laughs> no. I mean. Um, you're from Indiana. No. Yes. But you wrote at the end of your book, you talked about um, your thoughts on being here now on Earth as you are now. And you speculate about what it might mean as far as incarnating here and arriving here from some other realm to live this life on Earth, to experience things and seemingly to play some role. I would love to hear your ideas on that. Well, I think that 
this planet in this dimension, in this timeline, whatever you want to call it, this place is unique. I mean, I, I don't say unique. I mean, I think it's rare to have all these different kinds of experiences that you can have and all the different kinds of life forms. We don't even know all the life forms that actually live here and have always been here, you know, like what's going on at the bottom of the sea. You know what I mean? And I think that the experiences are unique and valued by lots of other life in other places. And, um, I feel like I've been here before and I feel like I've, uh, done this before. I remember when I was a kid, I I had this very vague memory of when I was a kid saying, I'm going to be, I'm going to be divorced. I'm going to be a widow. I'm going to have kids. I'm going to be a mom. I'm going to know what this feels like. It's all about feeling the experience and having the experience, you know? And then my mother said to me one day, she, we, her and I were sitting out on the porch swing of my old farmhouse. And she said, you know, do you remember when you were a child, you used to tell me that you were going to live in a big white farmhouse with a green roof and a green porch swing. And I said, I did, didn't I? And she said, you sure did. And she said, look where we're at. And I said, that's right. We're sitting on a big front porch of a big old farmhouse with a green roof. And I'm sitting on a green porch swing. And she says, I don't know about you. <laughs> she said, you're the only kid I got that can fall into a bucket of shit and come out smelling like a rose every time. I said, I don't know why. I just always have faith that something will see me through. And it always has. Uh, but I feel like um, I, I'm i here. Uh, I've been here before that uh, it's all about trying to elevate. I've. I, I feel like, like when I was a child, I had a dream. I mean, I was young and I had this dream, this vision, whatever you want to call it. Maybe it was like one of my first lucid dreams because I still remember it so well, but I was just hanging in nothing. I mean, I was, I existed and it was dark and in front of me was this brilliant light and all of a sudden it exploded in like a infinite number of little sparkly light shards and I was to see I was to be shown that every one of these little light shards entered into everything that's alive everywhere, not just on this planet, but everywhere. And they had whatever experience they were going to have in wherever it was they went. And then when they were done with that experience, they came back to where this sun had been, this big light. And they brought back with them all of their experiences, all their feelings, all their thoughts, everything. And then when, they brought it back. Everybody experienced it. Everybody grew stronger and, and wiser and bigger for it, you know? And I feel like that's why we're here. And that's why we're living these lives. We're, and I was a little kid. I was a little kid when I had this dream and this, another teaching dream that somebody was trying to remind me or show me. And I also have vague memories of having dreams when I was a kid of being somewhere and being told goodbye and that I wouldn't remember them, but I said, I always will remember you because I love you, you know, and I'm going off to do my job. <laughs> and and is that where you are right now? I mean, this life right now here on earth, is, is this your job? Yeah, I really feel 
strongly that the only reason I'm here is to experience everything I've experienced in this life and help others to realize their desires or their drive to have their experiences and to learn from them. Because I feel like if I help lift one person and help open one mind and help elevate one spirit and help remind one person of what they actually are capable of and what they really are, which is, I feel an, an energetic being. Uh, I think humans are, humans are the most wonderful, powerful, energetic beings around and they don't remember it and they hurt themselves with it. And I'm, I want, I feel like I'm here to help remind people of what they are capable of. And, and like, even I feel like our thoughts are powerful things and that we must mind them carefully and mind what we throw out there to the universe because it'll come back on you like a boomerang. I agree. I agree. And I, I feel like um, part of my job here is to remind people of that. Trying times, the last four or five years has been a nightmare. I woke up and told my husband, somebody must have ripped a hole in the space-time continuum and some crappy uh, alternative timeline has leaked all over mine and I want to go home. And he's like, what are you talking about? But I, I have to remind myself constantly and I'm trying to do remind other people to keep my thoughts positive and focus on the positive because what I say in my head I want and what I want the world to be like, I have to think it in my head. Everything that you see in this world began with a thought. Everything. Yeah. And so I have to be mindful of my thoughts and I want people to be mindful of their thoughts and because they're powerful and they can change the world in any direction, you know, so we want it to be in a good direction. And uh, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. I know it's, it might sound crazy. Oh, no, no, no. And no. I don't have, I don't have good words. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm just, this is something, this is something that I have come to. This is something I have learned and come to within myself as I have come through the things that I've come through, you know, and had the experiences that I've had. I had a near death experience when I gave birth to my son. I watched my husband commit suicide with a shotgun in my backyard. I had a tornado drop a house on me. And yet all these experiences that I've had, I'm in some way grateful for them because they have shown me how powerful I am, how strong I am. And a, a part of life that I, you know, I feel like the more, the the harder the deeper the trauma the more the more elevated that you can come you know like a slingshot you're the further back you get pulled the farther you're going to go yeah and that that i don't think we would choose that consciously i think we would any any thoughtful person would probably choose the mellower life path and I've chose the craziest one. I told my friend one time, I said, you know, I must have said, ah, hell, let's just do it all now and get it over so I don't have to come back. To I want to go somewhere else the next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you didn't make that consciously, that decision. That sounds like it was no. a decision that was made in some ethereal realm, if that's if, if I'm hearing you right. 
some somehow yeah i don't I don't know how that works. I don't either. Yeah. All I know, I don't know how that works, but I do remember as a kid thinking how oh, I'm going to, okay, yeah, I'm going to have kids. I'm going to be a mom. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to get divorced. I'm going to know what that feels like. I'm going to know what it feels like to lose something. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to have all these experiences. I didn't realize I was going to have quite that many. <laughs> okay. Okay. So given that, where does the book fit in this new book? To me, what I try to do with this is I just want people, I want to see that I want them to see my progression of where I started and where I've come and feel hopeful that no matter what kind of trauma they go through in life, whether it's this or any other kind of trauma, they can come through it and grow from it and be a, be a better and stronger person. I mean, I have to, I, I don't know, I guess I'm looking at the, the, silver lining on the cloud maybe i don't know how they say that you know sure yeah so so what i'm so from my point of view having just finished the book there's a there's a there's a set of unbelievable experiences told in a very plain spoken way and the the culmination of the book is this this optimism as well as you know your thoughts on the grand mystery of reality itself which yeah i didn't expect when i started the book that you would come to the you know i didn't expect that would be the end of the book i know i had you know i i had these weird epiphanies throughout my life these little like the cluster bubble thing you know i call that my uh uh roy moment like from close encounters when he starts playing with the mashed potatoes sure, you know, and he yeah. suddenly realizes the you know devil's tower well, my kid was playing with bubbles, wands one time out in the yard. And when he pulled up this giant wand with all these little holes in it, all these bubbles just kind of hung there and were hung on this wand, almost like a wasp nest kind of hung on it. But I was looking at it and I thought, I know what that is. I recognize that. And then it's like I subconsciously remembered somewhere somebody told me that that's what universes look like, that they're all like bubbles and they touch. And in those little places where they can touch, there can be contact. It moves and it changes and it's brief. But, you know, I mean, I that's that's the weird stuff I've kind of done all my life. And I look back and I, I say that if I hadn't had those initial uh, scary physical contacts, I wouldn't be realizing that soap bubbles are what universes look like you know not that i know i'm like i said i have a high school diploma and a beauty school certificate i have no idea about universes and alternate realities and stuff but it's like somebody told me or showed me i've seen this before i don't remember when but i i've seen it before and i just start writing all of it down and putting it all together and you know i'm not done yet trust me i'm i'm a I'm a work in progress until the last breath I take here, but I'm, and I may have yet another book, maybe more well-written <laughs> than this No, that one. was beautifully End written. Don't future. you worry about it. Yeah. But, uh, I will, uh, you know, I'm, I just wanted to show what the changes in me through this. Yeah. Hey, let me read one little short excerpt from your book. I will read it aloud, and and then I think we can wind down and sum things up. But this is a, this this really struck me because this is what I struggle with, you know, where my own self is in this grand mystery. And you wrote, 
Perhaps some of the changes in me were inadvertent side effects of the telepathic communication. Perhaps experiencing these traumatic events forced me into rising above it all, to change and to grow. Perhaps these qualities were already bred into me, and that was why they were attracted to my people in the first place. I don't really have an answer for this. Bud always stressed to me, don't give them credit for what you did yourself. Oh, yeah. He always said that. You know, as I as I started to uh, mature and transform and started heading in the direction where I'm in now, and I would talk to him about these things, you know, he always said that don't don't give them credit for what you did. And I'm like, I'm not giving them credit. I don't feel like I'm giving them credit. I feel like I've done the work. They just gave me the lessons and I did the lessons. You know what I mean? Yeah, I did the work. So that's where I felt, that's where I felt like I fell into, that's where I, the category I fell into, you know, I don't, I don't give them credit for anything good that I've become. I did that work, but I feel like they, uh, they were my, you know, they taught me, they showed me how to do this on my own. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a beautiful place to end it. We've been at it here for about an hour and 20 minutes. This seems like a perfect place to sum it up. And I, I, I seems like such a high point. I don't want to try to jinx that at all. Deb, thank you so much. This has been a delight. And how do people get in touch with you? You can uh, write to me through my website, www.debshome.com. So you can send me an email through there. You can also, I think there's links for you. You can buy my book. Uh, Extraordinary Contact, Life Beyond Intruders. And uh, I believe there's links on there also. If you want to pick up a, a, a new release of Intruders, there's a new release that's available out now and a new release of Missing Time as well. Wonderful. Wonderful. Those two books by Bud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who we both worked with and, and we both respect and miss. Oh, totally. Yeah, it'll be 10 years in, in a few weeks that he'll be gone. I, I just can't. I just, just can't seem. It doesn't seem like it's been that long. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Bye now. This is Mike, and this is usually where I say, and I'm chiming in after the editing. And that's true. But after saying goodbye, Deb and I kept on talking, and I kept the recorder rolling, and we talked about a lot, including our memories of Bud. And there's a palpable difference to how we talk after ending the formal interview. It's a lot looser and less formal, and I did this often in my old podcast series, Hidden Experience and the vibe always changed after it felt like we ended the interview. And I wish more of my interviews could have this lighter, more conversational tone. Okay, here's about 15 minutes more. Please enjoy. Wow. Yeah, this is, this is, this is the mystery to me. This is the outlying stories. This is the mystery to me. You know, when I sat with Bud, I, I so, I, um, I went in to meet Bud 
uh, I had I went back to New York. I hadn't seen Bud since the year before, so I met him in 2007 and did a uh, hypnosis session with him, and went back in 2008 to do a second hypnosis session with him. And I I remember I he, he lived on 16th Street, and I remember I was like five minutes early, so I walked around the block. And then I got to his door, and I was like two and a half minutes early. So I walked around the block again, and it was funny. There was a woman who, who was like had like, you know, asking people to sign things. You know, can you sign this little thing to get a, you know? And I I passed her twice. She like laughed at me when I passed her the second time. So, and I I knocked on Bud's door, and I went up the stairs, and and when I, this was he was ill at this point. When I looked at him, he did not look well, and and he said, I don't have the strength to do to do a hypnosis session. Let's just sit and talk. So we sat and talked for like, I don't know, must have been two and a half hours or something. And it was so important to me because I would say these things. I was like, what about the synchronicities? And he would, he's a smart guy. And he was like, he, he could size me up, it felt like. And he would say like, yeah, the synchronicities. Yes. Well, don't you get pulled down into the, he's like, don't get pulled off track by those synchronicities. And then he, then he told a story about the very first um, UFO investigation he did on his own. Just the guy across the street at the liquor store said, "Oh my God, I saw a UFO." Yes, I uh, yeah, I remember that guy. I remember that. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then he then he went to the site where it happened, and he said, "Wow, there's a building right there." And if you saw the UFO here, the doorman at that building might have seen it. So he went and talked to the doorman, and he, as soon as they saw each other, they recognized each other. He said, "I know you." So they had met. So there's two witnesses to this site, and he knew both of them. And he was like, so he was like telling me like, "Don't get, don't you dare get, you know, dragged down. Don't you get." taken off track by these synchronicities. And then he told me a powerful synchronicity story. Right. It made him nervous. Um, and, and like I said, he was trying to, I, I know part of it was because he was trying to get the, the general public to listen. And he, I think he was just afraid to throw too much out there at once. It was like baby steps for him. It was like baby steps for him as well as him trying to make baby steps for the for the masses, you know what I mean? Oh, he was very aware of his public presence and his role in this, in this. And he didn't want, he really didn't want to be like connected with, I think that him and John Mack actually kind of butted heads about this sort of thing near the end of John's life, I think. Oh, well, I think they were civil about it, but I think they agreed to disagree in a very polite, formal way. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Because they were both intelligent men, you know, but I just... I think it scared Bud. I don't I don't mean this. Bud was an atheist. He did not believe in afterlife or any of that other stuff. Now he knows. <laughs> did you read uh, Leslie Kane's book, uh, Surviving Death? It just came out a couple years ago. Yes, I did read. I did read her book. And he, I had a really wild that you would appreciate this dream. It was like right after I finished the second book. And I was like feeling, yeah, I finished this book. I finished, yay, thank God. It was like, because I'd worked years to try to unravel it all and put it all back and make it make sense, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a dream about Bud. And I hadn't, I've never had a dream about him that I recall since he died, you know, or any other time. I mean, I've only had like one or two dreams about my dad and mom, and they've been gone for 20 years. And it was one of those vivid dreams, like I told you I have, you know, the the real and 3D and I'm in it, not watching it and all that, you know. Mm-hmm. Me and Bud are like outside on a patio somewhere, tropical, like the seaside or whatever restaurant, nice, lovely breeze. And it's a beautiful day. And Bud is sitting in front of me in this chair 
and he is he looking good, looking young and healthy, but not too young. I still recognize him, you know, but he's just looking so good. His eyes are sparkling. He's got this great smile on his face. And I'm saying to him, but I finished the book. I finally finished the book. I've waited so long and it's been so hard for me to focus and so much going on and, you know, working in the factory and all that. And I finally got it done. Uh, I did something productive during COVID shutdown and uh, he's smiling and, and shook his head, but he never really said anything to me. And then I said, but is that really you? I said, you look so good and you look so happy. And then I said, Bud, is it like I told you it was? Because he, you know, even the letter he wrote to me when he was basically saying goodbye right before he passed away, you know, he's like, I don't believe in the afterlife. I don't believe in, you know, I believe when we die, we're just done and that's it. But I said, is it really you? I said, do you, is it, was it like I said that I thought it was? Cause I would say, no, nah, I don't know, bud. I think maybe there's something going, you know, I had that near death experience and all that. And he smiled and he never really said yes or no. But then I realized he was wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Okay. Bud Hopkins would never wear a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> no. He always wore that blue and white pinstripe shirt all the time. And like a sweater or something like Mr. Rogers, you know, uh, he, he, he would never wear a Hawaiian shirt. And then it dawned on me. Sometimes in these dreams, when I have these vivid dreams or these lucid dreams, I get symbology. I get symbols. I see one thing, but it means something else. And it dawned on me when I saw him wearing that Hawaiian shirt. Okay, in my mind, Hawaiian, Hawaii equates with, with paradise. And I said, oh, my God, but is it really paradise? Is it really like that? And he just smiled and, and kind of nodded his head not really a full-on yes or anything, but when I said that I had finished my book, he said to me, I'm proud of you, kid. Wow. I'm really proud of you. I know. And it's like, what the fuck? But excuse my fridge. That's okay. Because that's what I was thinking. And then, and then suddenly Leslie Keene came into my mind during this dream. I thought of Leslie and I realized that message is not just for me. I am supposed to tell her that Bud is proud of her. I don't know what's going on in her life. I don't know what she's doing. And so I sent her a text message, our instant message to Facebook, which we'd communicate every once in a while. And usually when I messaged her, I wouldn't hear from her for like three months. And then she'd finally get back to me because she's so busy. Yeah, yeah. But when I sent her that message, you know, she got right back to me. And she says, oh, my God, what a great message that is. And yes, I believe that was Bud. And thank you so much for sharing that with me. Well, then I find out right when I had that dream and, and he was telling me that he was proud of me and wanting me to tell Leslie that he was proud of her, too. I I then found out that that book that she wrote about surviving death was going to going to be on TV. Yeah. That is exactly when I had that dream. I didn't even know that was happening. And it, Bud wanted me to tell her he was proud of her for that, too. That was another way that he confirmed to me there is an afterlife. Just another way, another way of a million different ways that I've had in my life pointing to the fact that we don't die. I agree. I agree. That was my sense, too, when I because I feel strongly there's an afterlife and I don't know why I feel that, but I certainly feel it strongly. I've talked to a lot of people who have had near death experiences mm -hmm. and um, and I just kind of I just know it in my 
gut, my soul. I just know it, you know? Yep. And, um, and Bud in the summer of 2011, probably right about now, probably 10 years ago, exactly from now, about a month before he died, he called me up. I hadn't heard from him in a while. And he just, Mike, how you doing? And just checking in and like, how's everything going? And I, and I, like in this call, I knew he was saying goodbye. He just, I felt like he was like, just before I go, you know, he wanted to talk to me. Mm-hmm. We talked for 20 minutes or so and he sounded great. And I said, thanks for calling. And he's like, you just take care, man. And, 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 and we said goodbye. And I knew that was the last time I was, I would ever talk with him. That, that was it. Mm-hmm. And, a, and, a, and I, I got a hold of some people that I know that had worked with, Bud, some, some experiencers that, and I said, I said, call it, do it right now. Don't wait, don't wait, contact Bud. And they either wrote letters or called him. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that felt, that felt really, and he died, uh, a day before my birthday. So, which would have been August 21st, 2011. So. Yeah. Well, he wrote me a letter. He sent me a copy of his book that he wrote, uh, UFOs, art, art, life and UFOs. Yeah. Right. He sent me a copy of that cause it just come out. And in the book, when I opened, and I wasn't expecting it. So when I got it in the mail, I'm like, oh, look at this. I didn't even realize that he had done that. When I opened the book, a letter fell out of it. And in the letter, he basically was telling me goodbye. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I still have it. I keep the letter in the book. Yeah. And I still, I will cherish it always. When I got the phone call from Peter, Peter's the one who called me and told me that he passed away. After I hung up the phone, I just cried all day long. I cried as much when I got the news about him as I did when I got the news about my own dad dying. Mm-hmm. It felt it felt the same in some ways. Yeah. I mean, I'm just going to be grateful and feel blessed for my entire life that I met Bud Hopkins and he changed me, changed my life, it saved my life. Yeah. And someday I'm going to be able to tell him in person just what he did for me. Hopefully he's watching. According to my dream, he's he's paying attention. But, you know, I mean, I met him early on in his, you know, career. Yeah. As time passed and I did better, got better and better. It's like a dad on a teaching a kid how to ride a bike. Finally, I was able to take off on my own and I was doing, you know, I wrote my own book and all that other stuff. And at that point he was literally swamped with people because of the book intruders with letters and people wanting his help. And, you know, I mean, he was just come, they were coming at him from all over the world at every which way, but loose and just pulling him so thin and apart, you know, and he really didn't have time to talk to me much or spend much time with me anymore. So it might be a couple of years would pass before we would speak to each other. Or, you know, I would try to call him and we'd play phone tag. And then finally, we'd finally hook up, you know, and talk. Or I might see him at a conference. I might get invited to a conference. And the only reason I accepted was because I knew Bud was going to be there. And I'd be able to see him, you know. Yeah. So uh, in, in the beginning, early on, I almost felt like I was kind of being abandoned. But I had to realize that, you know, I was blessed and fortunate to have him for three solid years to myself pretty much well you know with that exception of a handful uh, you know people compared to what he ended up with and so uh i had to let him do what he was there to do you know and that's help other people 
and uh, be grateful for the time I had with him. And I, I remember sitting in his studio one time, um, boxes of letters all around the place. And he was saying, look, read this. This is similar to what you had and this and this. I'm like, I was in this box. My letter was in this box right along with these other people. Why did you answer me? Yeah, I have the same. I have the same experience. Why did he answer me? Yeah. Yeah. Why? Why? Why did you write the book about me and my family, my life? And you know, it it grew legs and took off. And he goes, I don't know, kid. That's the sixty-four thousand dollar question. I said, you think is maybe was destiny? And he goes, Yeah, might be, maybe. I have very strong feelings about destiny, and and I think a lot is orchestrated. I think the scriptwriters of reality are penning a very nuanced story for us to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, you know, I'm going to include this in the end, this last little bit that we talked about, but this was exactly what... You... Oh, yeah, that's fine. Great. So I've, I'm so glad. I, at a certain point, I was like, it's kind of unethical to like not turn the recorder off when you're done with the interview, but I just left it on. And, and I'm glad I caught that. I'm glad I caught that because that was beautiful. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's fine. Do add that, whatever you want. I trust you. And I trust that whatever needs to be out there will be out there. You'll do you'll do it fine. I, I have no worries. Good. Hey, I'm going to let you go. We've been at it for uh, 8.06. We started six, two hours. Yeah. So. <laughs> Doesn't seem like it, though. Yeah. I've enjoyed, I really enjoy talking to you. We should just stay in touch. Let's, let's keep in touch. I'll fill you in on my stuff. Hey, once again, great to hear from you. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I think this will be a nice addition to what Whitley shared. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate everything. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye now. This is Mike, again, chiming in after the editing. This was a long interview, and there is so much more we could have covered, but didn't. I said this in the episode. Reading this book felt like hearing Deb's straightforward, plain-spoken voice. This is a remarkable addition to the UFO literature. Deb's book and Bud's books, Missing Time and Intruders, are easily found online. And again, these should all be considered required reading for anyone in this field. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.